Hey everybody, my name is Noel, one of the pastors here at RIV, and we are in that final lap, the last few messages at the end of this series, and we have been talking about some big stuff, some controversial stuff, and we've been trying to go to the Bible to see what the Bible has to say about what our position on that should be and what our posture should be uh, toward those who disagree with us. And today's message is significant for this moment of time. I've got Pastor Dr. Justin Detmers uh, with us uh, from our Rio Town venue. And today's topic is gender and gender identity. And, and probably of all of the issues that we're talking about during this series, this is the one that kind of like feels the most pressing. Mm-hmm. But like 10 years ago, it probably wouldn't have even been our, on our radar screen if we were doing a, a message like this. So like, why do you think it's in our cultural consciousness so quickly? That's a great question. There's a lot of reasons I think platforming and mainstreaming of things happen. Uh, gender, gender identity issues have been going on forever. Um, but if you think about what maybe has happened in the academy, um, maybe in pop culture, some of the things across the political spectrum that have been sometimes historically, and I don't say this to denigrate them, fringe Mm -hmm. or less popular have been maybe centered or mainstreamed a little Mm -hmm. bit more. Um, and I, I think we've also had a reckoning in our society of what, it means to be a person in the margins in general. I think that's part of it. So there's there's a confluence of different things all happening at once as our society is kind of rethinking itself and calling our past into question. And uh, we're also getting very, very individualistic mm-hmm. as well. So self-expression yeah. is a yeah. very big thing that maps onto this and everything else in the world. Yeah, so we talked about this with your last topic, but there's this uh, intersection that you have between being a Christian pastor and a professor mm-hmm. at, at, in, at the university, and you do both. And so this topic, probably even more than your last topic, is something you're probably facing a lot. And you've studied this more than anybody that I personally mm-hmm. know uh, spent time on this issue. How has that been being a Christian pastor, a secular university professor, um, dealing with these issues both in the church and, and in the classroom? I think my brain immediately jumps to the reminder that we are strangers and exiles, that our citizenship is in heaven. And then also understanding we live in a pluralistic society. That's where we live. It's always been pluralistic. And if we want to become all things to all people and not just want cultural reproduction to be what it means to be a Christian, then we have to enter in spaces and say, maybe I have uh, some capital, maybe I don't have any dominance, maybe I don't. So going into a place and sometimes feeling a little bit like a cognitive minority um, or going into a place and really seeking to understand functionally different subcultures and different uh, groups of people. And so when you get into a Big Ten university, you're going to get folks of every stripe and type that come in through those doors, and my job is to love them, serve them, stay in my lane and teach them my thing while I still want to be a faithful presence for Jesus. Um, So the best answer to your question is, I don't know. 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> well I, I, I'm looking forward to this message because I do think this is the, the most common question I get these days. Mm-hmm. And I know that this is a really difficult one to tackle. So praying for you as you get ready to jump up there. Thank you um, much. As, as we've done throughout this whole series, if you have any questions that pop up on this topic, there's a QR code right there in your handout or rivchurch.com slash questions. And we're going to be having our final uh, night of conversation. Uh, Dr. Detmers will be part of that um, on Sunday, November 12th at 7 p.m at the Rio Town venue, and we're going to be discussing questions that are sent in in advance. So please send those questions in so that we uh, can tackle those together. So looking forward to hearing this message. Thank you much. Good morning. Recently, I came across a short video about Teddy Roosevelt, our 26th president. Um, He was known as an American lion, as a cowboy, a trust buster, an outdoorsman. As a rough rider, esteemed for his infamous charge of San Juan Hill in the Spanish-American War, the video was put out by a website called The Art of Manliness. The video was entitled A Moment in Manliness, highlighting in their view, I guess, an instance of grade A manhood. Recapped one of my favorite stories in all of U.S. history. It was 1912, and TR was campaigning through Milwaukee for his newly formed third party, those exist, by the way, um, called the Bull Moose Party, when a deranged would-be assassin worked his way through the crowd, found the president, and shot him in the chest. The shot initially took Teddy down, but fortunately the bullet was slowed by a, a case for his glasses, and he had a thick folded-up speech behind it. Now, when Teddy realized that the wound wasn't mortal because he had been around guns his whole life, had shot everything that walked, if you know anything about his biology, if there was something, he shot it. Um, He realized it wasn't mortal. He got up, bloody shirt and all, and he announced this to the crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. Then he proceeded to talk for 84 more minutes before finally being persuaded to go to the hospital. Some of us are like, I have a hangnail. I can't go in today. (laughs) Now, I want to ask you to consider the framing of this video. What was it that made TR a man? Was it his identity, like how he thought of himself? Was it his behavior and his actions, like his choice of clothes, his mannerisms? Was it his alignment with cultural stereotypes or cultural aspirations? Was it his biology? Was it some of the above? None of the above? All of the above? And more importantly, how would you answer that question to someone who is genuinely curious? In our cultural moment, we don't have consensus. If you walk down a street and you ask 10 people, you'll probably get 10 and a half answers. Moreover, we typically don't have a sophistication on this that goes beyond slogans and civility is pretty rare. So our task is to build or maybe uncover a foundation for what it means to think about sex and gender, to biblically frame in a topic that is very weighty precisely because it cuts at the heart of our identity. Maybe it's foolhardy, but this morning I want to tell us about who we are. And I can't do everything, especially in the allotted time. So think about today, like if it was an episode of Fixer Upper, today would be demo day. 
okay? We're gonna take everything down to the studs, but we're not, it may be framing, right? But we're not gonna paint every wall. We're not gonna choose how to place furniture and how to set like a, a cushion slightly askew. We're not gonna do all of that. I've entitled this talk, Sacred Embodied Temples. I believe that's what human beings are, that we are sacred embodied temples. I draw this from 1 Corinthians 6, and this is where Paul is addressing sexual immorality with a Christian audience. He says this in verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, Corinth was and still is near Athens at the heart and center of the Greek thought world. Coming out of that was a lot of Plato's thinking. Platonism was this heresy and it was persuasive. It supposed that there was this great divorce between the spiritual world and the material or physical world. So he believed in the forms and that was what was ultimate. And the idea was what was material is bad and temporary and what is uh, spiritual is automatically good and eternal. He supposed that the body was the prison house for the soul, not fully integrated with the rest of the person. The real you was the you that was inside. So for Greeks, uh, you could do whatever you wanted with your body because again, the real you was inside and you were free to live however you want. Does that sound familiar at all? Is there anything new under the sun? Speaking of our time, Christian philosopher Cornelius Plantica says, in such a culture, the self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. Now to Paul, in the history of Christian thought, throughout the ages, the body has been held in the highest regard because among other things, not just being linked to the body of Christ, it is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. A temple for the Holy Spirit. That inside you and I is supposed to be a proxy for God's throne room in heaven. The place of overlap between heaven and earth. God doesn't dwell in buildings like we're in right now. But yet within us, you and I are supposed to be the place where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we are sacred embodied temples. So today I'm not just talking about ideas or concepts. I'm I'm talking about people. And not just about people, but to people. I'm talking to you. So I have a few qualifiers. Uh, In the various roles that I have, I do life alongside an array of people. Some of whom groan inwardly, loathing their bodies. Some worrying about external acceptance. Sleepless parents worried about the ideological inputs in peer pressure that their kids might encounter. People talking about being disowned by family. People wondering what the Bible says and if Jesus or his church wants anything to do with them. So before proceeding, I feel compelled to speak to two things. One, inadequacy. One sermon is not enough to address the myriad of questions today. We'll actually probably birth a lot of questions. It's also not enough to counteract hundreds of thousands of hours of socialization. I feel personally inadequate for a number of reasons. Not just because of the breadth and the width of what we could talk about here today. But truth be told, in this room, in our viewing audience, there is contradiction, contradiction, excuse me, baked in to our experiences and our understandings. Some of us 
Maybe we don't realize it, but we have been persuaded by kind of old-timey traditions and tropes and maybe truck commercials. I, I don't know. Others among us, perhaps we've been formed by Judith Butler or third-wave feminism and the emphasis on agency and choice. When word got out that I was speaking on this topic and we tried to keep it under wraps, um, I began getting emails with links and podcasts, suggestions and questions prior to speaking. That's never happened to me before. And so I, I, to be honest, I feel an angst in a weight that I've really never felt before. There are so many different ways I can mishandle this or someone can project. So I'll just ask you instead of leaving or ranting, please give grace. I need it. Secondly, intention. No matter who you are, and especially if you are on the margins, hear this. Your, your church knows you and sees you, and we want you here. When we recite our mission statement, that we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like him. We actually mean everyone. And we don't invite you to culture war or to status quo or stereotypes or blissful ignorance. We invite you to Jesus. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And so while God's ways are not our ways, and they're often difficult ways, we invite you to stumble with us just as you are because there is no other way to come to him and to walk with him other than as you are. So how do we even begin? I mean, if we're honest here, we have to think deeply. We have to think soberly about this. It's common for people just to start with terminology, here's some words, or imperatives, do this, don't do that. But without a foundation, an established foundation, we are prone to a circular reasoning that will only reproduce the biases we walked in here with. There's more basic questions out there. Like, first of all, what is a human? Like, we should start there, right? What is a human? But counterintuitively, we, we can't really understand humanity by starting with people. We actually have to start with God, with the creator, Without a proper starting point, all other points of reference are incoherent and we'll just talk past each other. So let's start in the beginning, the, the four most important words. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. It says that when everything else was chaos, and the Hebrew here is tohu wabohu, dark, formless, and void, that God spoke. And his creativity and his language gave order, shape. It, it contoured, it gave light. So this means from the outset, you and I are not preeminent. We are secondary at best because our existence is contingent on God. Theologians will tell us um, that what this means is that the universe was not necessary. We have an unnecessary universe. God did not need to create it or us. He is not served by it. He is independent. He is self-sustained. This means, sorry to pop the balloon here, you and I are not the point of everything. <laughs> the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? Like, what is the point of people? The answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the fundamental reason for the universe's existence is God, his will, his pleasure, his glory. And while you and I, while people are precious, we are important, we are still ultimately unnecessary because our existence is dependent. 
to come into being, we had to receive something even to show up on the scene. The one who gave us this existence loves us, authors us. He gives us meaning. He deserves praise, honor, worship, and obedience. That's the starting point. So what we need to do when we start any inquiry about humanity is to start with which, what is called uh, the, the creator-creature distinction. Carl F.H. Henry says, it is our business as Christians to begin our interpretation of reality upon the presupposition of the creator-creature distinction, the difference between God and everything else, the angels, the squirrels, buffalo wild wings. There's a difference in it all as basic to everything else. Because if we don't have God, all we have is chaos. All we have is tohu wabohu. So, We've acknowledged the creator. Now we want to ask, what did he make? What did he create? The text tells us he made images. He made images. As the pinnacle of his creation, he made images. Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. This word image, the Hebrew is selim. There's a silent T in there, selim. Or if we wanted to get fancy and go to the Latin, this is where we get the imago Dei, the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, what is glaring here is sex distinction, male and female. Jesus echoed this in Matthew and Mark when he's talking about marriage and divorce, um, something that Davies and Allison, two Bible nerds, point out, um, how Jesus connected the created order, like how things are, to the moral order of how things ought to be. But so often what we do is we look past how this distinction is integral to God's image. God is brilliant. God's got options. He could have done anything. How does he choose in his infinite wisdom to represent his glory? Male and female. And just as a quick sidebar, how elevating and dignifying would this be to women, particularly in ancient patriarchies, where they're totally disregarded? So the original audience that would have received this in the ancient Near East, they would live under the authority of a king, pharaoh, etc., right? The king would claim to be God or godlike or divine and would suppose to define good and evil and have authority over people. And the king would often make statues. Selim. What is Selim? Selim is an image, an idol that if you're playing Bible bingo, like oh, that word pops up quite a bit, right? It's a resemblance or a physical likeness, something physical that represents something else. These would be set up in the territory to show who is boss, okay? So those of us who know the Bible, uh, we're familiar with the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They do not bow down to the 90-foot golden selim of Nebuchadnezzar, that statue. Does this sound familiar? Now, throughout Israel's history, uh, we see that often the nation takes issues with graven images for a couple reasons. Number one, the divine king can't be reduced to something lifeless. And number two, he had already done the work and created images that were alive in his likeness. God's rule and reign is supposed to be carried out in people and through people. Scholars point out that Eden wasn't just a garden, but it functioned a lot like a temple. People could dwell there in perfection without sin with the presence of God. And so in Genesis 1, five times, it says, God saw that it was good. Five times. God is like operating out of the redundant department of redundancy. He sees what he does and he's like, oh, that's, 
very good. He, he's celebrating his work. It's untarnished. Christopher Watkins says, it was good is not a realization. It's not like when my kids ask me to draw and I'm like, oh, that, well, that actually kind of looks good. Like it's the dog I was trying to draw. No, it, it's a declaration. Like the lions are going to the playoffs. Amen. Like, let's get charismatic all of a sudden. Come on. It is good. It's a fact. God speaks and it exists. God speaks and it is good. Both ontology, that is the study of the existence of things, and axiology, which is the study of the goodness of things, are equally and inseparably dependent on the divine word. We could say that for the Bible, values are factual and facts are valuable. And one of those facts is that we are created in his image and we have infinite worth. So let's take an important detour, shall we? Christian Worldview 101. If we were to zoom out and consider the, the history and future of everything in a four-part play, you know, just a very modest goal we got here, we would see four acts. The first act is what we just described, creation. God created the world. God created everything in it. It was good. His presence was fully with us. You don't have to flip many pages till you get to act two, the fall, sin, Humans reject God's good rule and reign. We attempt to flip the script, as D.A. Carson says. We want to de-God God, set ourselves up as our own authority, define good and evil for ourselves, apart from him, independent. And because God is holy, he pulls back his presence and would only let people draw near with the mediation of a temple. So this means sin, Death, decay, disorder, and disordered desires, as the kids say, enters the chat. Moral evils, deceit, and lust show up. Natural evils, cancer, earthquakes, sin infiltrates everything, even our view of ourselves and our view of others and our view of God. In Romans 7, under the heading, uh, the problem of sin in us, the Apostle Paul, who is a radically mature Christian, by the way, he describes this tension within him. He speaks to how human nature is enslaved by sin. Pay attention to the body talk in these verses. He says, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. <sighs> yeah, that's a little on the nose, isn't it? <laughs> So I discover this law, like a fact of existence. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin and the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Enter act three, Jesus will. Jesus will. While sin and decay are still present, Jesus comes to undo the curse and to rescue. The Father sends God the Son embodied as a flesh and blood person, as our representative. He lives a perfect life. He dies in our place. And then he is raised, literally. It's not like just the idea is carried on. Bodily, he carries on. Thomas, feel my hands. Thomas, put your hand in my side. He is embodied. And so what this means is Christians are now living in act three. And so the scenario is kind of like the cartoon, right? Each of us, we've kind of got the guy in red tights on one shoulder with the, with the trident, and you've got the, the, the white and the halo on the other one, right? That's the tug of war we live in as we look forward to act four, 
redemption or the new creation, a new order of things. Jesus returns, he reigns forever. Sin is banished, new heaven, new earth, and new bodies. I'll be able to jump again, it'll be great. We will have perfect fellowship with God, with ourselves and each other. This is Revelation 21, wiping all the tears from our eyes. No more death, pain, mourning, for the old order of things passes away. Now listen to Paul. One chapter later, okay, he explains what it's like living in Act 3. He's got the baggage of Act 2 as he's looking forward to the glory of Act 4. He says, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves waiting for adoption. How does he define adoption? Waiting for the redemption of our bodies. The cartoons have lied to us, okay? We're not just gonna float away on a cloud in a harp forever. That's boring. That's Christian worldview 101. How are we doing, by the way? Covered a lot of ground? Now we're ready to get at the issue at hand, okay? Here we go. Let's consider language. Let's get a little more granular here. We can't be lazy. We can't be imprecise. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word gender. That's not in the text, but it provides insights that are helpful. So let's start with sex, okay? Human beings are sexed. And when I say that human beings are sexed, don't hear that like a verb of something we do. I mean, we, we do that. There's Riv Kids is busy right now, okay? That's on you. So sext is not like the verb in like a 90s R&B slow jam, okay? It's a descriptor. Anyways, I want to take us to 10th grade biology. You remember that? How we have a differentiation in reproductive structures. The gametes of the egg and the sperm come together. They fuse, they form a new organism. The fancy term for this is sexual dimorphism. I know, it rolls right off the tongue. Sexual dimorphism speaks to physical difference. It's established by a fourfold criteria. Because um, I like to party, let's just keep going here. The presence or the absence of a Y chromosome, uh, males XY, ladies uh, dos equis, your double X, internal reproductive organs, external anatomy, and then unique endocrine systems with producing secondary sex characteristics, differing hormone levels. Uh, things can happen such as the development of breasts or not, bone structures, wider hips versus wider shoulders, differences in muscle mass, body hair, etc. Now there is a debate on the extent that endocrine systems and Hormones have on us, but what we know is that waves of hormones wash through humans, both in utero and beyond, to help us develop cognitively and bodily, and undoubtedly they, they impact our emotions, our interests, and our socialization. Now, while it's important to, to point out that we don't determine the sex of an animal or a person by emo an emotional profile or behaviors or stereotypes, no secondary uh, traits, these are still important. So that is a very quick uh, once over of what do we mean by sex. Okay, let's move on to gender. Or, or do we even have to? I mean, I think there's no, there's no drama here, right? So I could skip this. No, I'm still on the hook. So this is hotly debated. 
Captain Obvious. Um, for some, sex and gender are always perfectly synonymous. Others, that's more or less interchangeable. Sometimes, others are like, no, 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 they're way different. Well, I did a, a, a tracing of where the word came from. An etymology of gender traces back to Latin and some old French. Uh, it draws from the word genus. Genus speaks to a classification of types or kinds. Originally had nothing to do with human sex. But over time, the meaning morphed and expanded to encompass the roles, the behaviors, uh, the self-perception, and even societal expectation. Not just dimorphism, not just chromosomes and etc. Mark Yarhouse, who has been described as a conservative Christian clinical psychologist from Wheaton, explains that gender speaks to the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male and female, which means, and anybody who looks around, we know that interpretations of masculine and feminine will vary by time, culture, ideology, etc. And uh, interestingly, when Teddy Roosevelt was in office up through the 40s, uh, the color pink was actually commonly associated with boys. And blue was associated with girls. Some of you, I can see, are skeptical. When you go home, not right now because it would be rude, go Google the Ladies' Home Journal from 1918. You'll see what I'm talking about. Where am I going with this? The point is, divorced from sex, gender as a standalone becomes very hard to pin down. Samuel Ferguson says this, while we should be careful not to reduce gender to cultural stereotypes, we must realize that uprooting gender from biology effectively kills it. If it can be anything, it ends up being nothing. If it merely issues from psychology or culture, it's as unsteady and transitory as they are. Now, even in communities we might especially describe as trans-affirming, those communities may not have a perfect uniformity in establishing, hey, what is the basis for gender? There's a number of views out there. One such view is the brain sex theory. And the idea is that a brain could be sexed differently than the body. That's one view. Uh, I think the prevailing most popular view is the self-ID view that if a person thinks or claims that they happen to be a woman, then that's what is most salient. There's also another view out there that involves um, gender dysphoria, a diagnosis and a criteria that is different than just one person's identification. Debates also rage uh, about the degree to which someone performs maturitarian behaviors. And so we wonder, hey, what, what is it? Well, I think something that could be helpful is uh, graphics. Pictures are worth thousands of words, right? So I want to show you two. I want to contrast two pictures. The first is a lighthearted representation of I would describe as the, the ideological construct of secular Western progressive thought. I want to show you a picture of the, the gender-bred person, the gender-bred person. This is playing off the gingerbread man. And this is a view, uh, not put forth by uh, Christian authorship, um, that says that personhood and identity would, would involve a handful of things. First of all, you have the concept of identity. We all have an identity, right? How we think of ourselves. Uh, there's also the notion of attraction, who we desire. Thirdly, there's expression, how we express, how we dress, our behaviorisms, our manners, our, our uh, interests, our appearance, our roles, stereotypes. Sex is also included, but functionally, this can be dispensable to the equation. Uh, in her astute book, Love Thy Body, Nancy Piercy criticizes a view like this as a view of, of matter without meaning. 
she would say that our matter matters, that our matter is meaningful. And so while how we see ourselves and our experiences are very important, should be taken seriously, and sometimes, to be honest, they are snuffed out by stereotypes and bigotry, we need to be careful about establishing what is definitive. What is the bedrock? Melinda Selms, uh, a former lesbian atheist turned Catholic, which is a typical path to conversion, um, (laughs) who, by the way, many of us might have deep theological uh, disagreements with. I'm just pointing this out just to show um, uh, outside perspective chiming here. Um, In her book, Sexual Authenticity, she puts her finger on the pulse of society. This is what she says. Beneath all the pageantry of free sex and self-love is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything, that it is insignificant in a literal sense, signifying nothing. You can do anything you like with it. And then she lists a bunch of options for pleasure. It's a sort of wet machine, a tool which uh, you can use and exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. Ironically, Christianity, which has always been accused of putting God before man, amen, stands alone amongst a host of modern philosophies declaring that man is a unified, complete being, both with a mind with a free will and a body which has dignity and meaning. Let's turn to what I would describe as a biblical view. Uh, Dr. Preston Sprinkle, whose work I'm drawing from very heavily uh, today, he's a New Testament scholar, uh, presents the biblical theological view. And... um, Basically, if we see that graphic up here, what you see here, as it was from the beginning, that sex difference is the watershed. It is seen as real, as good, and meaningful. And notice the the, the circles around the man and the woman. What's going on there? Well, first, there's, there's a part in the middle, there's a bit of overlap. And this would speak to the genetic realities of being in an intersex condition, having chromosomes or anatomy of of both. And by the way, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do uh, with being transgender or having uh, a gender identity, okay? What this is simply pointing out is that we have two sexes that can be drawn from, not a third or a fourth. That's that part of the equation. Then I want to point to to the circles, these circles. And this would speak to the biblical typology, that matter matters, difference is real, but there's also a range in how that gets expressed, and you're still male or female. Let me give you two biblical cases in point, King David and Jesus. Now, we know that King David uh, wept, he danced, he wrote poetry. We know that Jesus wept, he embraced children, and on one occasion, even said that he wanted to draw people to himself like a mother hen would draw chicks to her breast. Do either of those expressions take away whether or not they were men? Were they less male than when they were killing Goliath and chopping his head off or clearing the temple? Or does those expressions just show us how inadequate our stereotypes are? You know, in our society, we might think of Teddy Roosevelt as the apex of masculinity. Let me ask you a mischievous question. From a biblical perspective... Um, if, if, if Teddy uh, would have went to the hospital right after being shot, would he have been less of a man as Reagan did in the 80s when he was shot? Or what if a woman pushed through being shot? Would she be less of a woman? Was this about being male or female? Or was this just about being determined and fearless or maybe having a screw loose? 
we don't want to present rigid stereotypes of here's Teddy Roosevelt and Marilyn Monroe side by side, and you have to get exactly that or else you're lacking. And to be sober for a moment, I think we do a great disservice to children when we make them follow stereotypes. To not make a little girl be able to play outside, go into math, be competitive. Don't be a tomboy. Don't play sports. And the same could be said for shaming sensitive boys who don't have a thirst for conflict. Perhaps we should be discipling children towards godliness, not stereotypes. And maybe, if I can be real and lean in, maybe a big reason why a lot of youth who do not fit in with the stereotypes, why they turn elsewhere, whether that's glowing screens or other places for acceptance, is because they haven't really found it in their church or in their home. Where should they turn? Where should we turn? We should turn to Jesus. Think about Jesus. Think about his body for a moment. Emmanuel. God with us, right? We think about that on Christmas Eve and that's the only time, right? Then we go back to it, but it's relevant eternally, okay? It says that when the word came, the word became flesh, okay? This is the incarnation. God put on a bod. God put on a body, carne, Spanish, meat, flesh. Jesus was not a ghost. He had a good and sexed body, Necessarily, that was required for our atonement. We needed a representative to be one of us. Hebrews 10. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, that's Jesus, God the Son, saying to God the Father, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. A few verses later, the author says, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus, his body was laid down. He was our representative. For those who repent and believe, he went before us in a resurrection to life. He was embodied after the tomb was empty. And new and redeemed bodies await us in the future while we wait for his return. Now, what are some implications? I, I, I roughly came up with 500, um, but I narrowed the list down to five, and it's, it's lacking. It's like picking, like, which child should I not feed? Anyways. <laughs> what are some implications? What are some positions and postures? I have five for us. Hopefully they challenge us all. Number one, the body shapes identity. The body shapes identity. We don't believe that the body is a prison house for the soul. So we as a church would conclude that it was TR's biology that made a male, not necessarily his self-perception, behavior, or clothing. Because sex distinctions grounded in biology reflect the God-ordained order instituted prior to the fall. Robert Jensen says, for my femaleness or maleness is not constituted in malleable or contingent psychology or social construction, but in the shape of the body that I am, which can be hated and even mutilated, but cannot actually be given the shape of its counterparts. Not even by the most sophisticated technology, thus sexuality determines the identity of humanity. Personhood is necessarily embodied. 
It is embodied, and bodies were made good. The Bible always refers to people as such. You might ask, hey, what about eunuchs? What about eunuchs? Castrated men. The Bible calls eunuchs men. Rebecca McLaughlin shrewdly points out, this is because our value and our identity does not come from our reproductive ability. It's not tied to that. It's tied to Christ and how he made us. So body shapes identity, number two. Being true to God is greater than being true to the self. Greater than Greater is being true to God than being true to ourself. Uh, the, the mantra, like the street philosophy of our day is follow your heart, stay true to yourself. But Jeremiah tells us that our heart is above all deceitful. It's wicked, it's, it's fallen. Jesus actually calls us to die to ourselves, the old self, if we want to truly live in the new self. This means I can't see myself clearly when I look in my own broken mirror. Again, lean not on your own understanding, but trust the Lord with all of your heart. The body is always a temple. The question simply is, who will be worshipped in said temple? So God's moral will is that we would be true to a new self that has been joined with Christ by the Spirit. Thirdly, Jesus' church has room for everyone. Pastors, leaders, we have stacked our hands on this I would die on this hill. The church of Jesus has room for everyone. One of my favorite things about the gospel of Luke is that how it shows Jesus in his eagerness to seek out, to dignify, to love proactively, to humanize and befriend those in the margins. He is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 for the one. He wants to draw all people to himself. Shouldn't the same be said For his church, fourthly, people are more important than ideology. People are more important than ideology. It's common to see hearts close and relationships die because of those tribalistic urges for culture war. You know, get in the comments, put on all caps, and just rant. That'll change things. Jesus was not an ideology. He was a person. He didn't die for an ideology. He died for people. People who, by the way, had differing ideologies. So maybe we need to tune up, turn up the dial of how much people matter because they are the sacred embodied temples and turn down the dial of tribalism and ideology. Number five, sanctification is more important than stereotypes. Our sanctification is more important than stereotypes. It's that slow process of becoming more like Jesus. If you go to Romans 8, there's that, you know, that famous verse. It's like, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we usually just stop there. But what does Romans 8.29 say? It speaks to like the point is to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. That you and I would be mini Christs. We're supposed to be like Christ. That's the life change. Or or go to Romans 12, the first few verses. That we are supposed to be caught up in a lifelong process of being transformed by the renewal of our mind, not conformed to the spirit of the age, but the renewal of our mind. So those are five thoughts. You know, as I mentioned earlier, um, initially I didn't want to give this talk. There's so many missteps. Uh, I was reluctant, feeling angsty, 
apprehensive. You know, when, when you put yourself out there, um, trolls gonna troll. You know, if I do all this work, is is the headache w- worth it? Like, I just hate the drama. Even though I love to stir the pot, I hate the drama. I know you're like, you don't understand cause and effect. <laughs> Clearly, I don't. Um, but I, I then I thought about. Um, a friend I, I have made in recent months here at, at Riv who told me ever since um, before preschool, wrestled with gender identity their entire life. I never saw a social media post, none of that. Came to Riv a while back, wondering if this is a place where I could just be. Could I figure some of this stuff out? And so we got together, learned the story, uh, shared struggles, talked, questioned shared some meals, we read together. And it, it's so cool, this friendship, because on the surface, and humanity looks on the surface, my friend and I, we've got a very different vibe, right? Like on the surface, I'm a walking cliche. I have a truck. I like contact sports. Um, somebody sees me without a flannel and you're like, are, are you okay? <laughs> um, and by the way, um, just to take this a little bit too far, if you have extra venison, please, Okay. <laughs> This actually, this whole sermon was just an excuse to ask for Venice. Anyways, what I'm getting at though today is that our common ground isn't tropes, it's Jesus. Sanctification is our shared destiny. And as I've watched my friend, let God be God and begin to rethink and re-examine and enter all these places inside the heart, that's implicating, because I don't know if I do that on the regular. Humility Teachability are very rare. And so feeling anxious for this talk, I I called up a handful of people. I said, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I believe is true. Can I workshop this with you? And the last call I made was to my friend. And in addition to be told, hey, I'll, I'll be praying for you. I felt so heard, maybe more heard than I have felt in a long time. And my friend said something that just reverberated inside me. And I was told, if you say true things with compassion, everything else will take care of itself. Riverview, if we say true things with compassion, everything else will take care of itself. A lot of people don't want to say true things. A lot of people want nothing to do with compassion. Very few people will put them together. That support gave me courage, helped me remember my why, and it shows me how much we need everybody so that we can stumble together. I'm gonna let Preston Sprinkle close this down with this quote. Accepting people doesn't doesn't mean believing that such people have a flawless view of God, the world, humanity, or themselves. Christian acceptance is always an acceptance into a flawed community seeking holiness and repentance. It's acceptance into a countercultural family with a different pattern of life, a fresh way to be human, and an otherworldly ethic rooted in creation and longing for resurrection. Acceptance is the first step of discipleship, and Christian discipleship is about pursuing the image God has created us to be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, May your name be lifted up and honored in and amongst us. You tell us that the world will know that we are your disciples if we love one another. 
Help us to be believers. Believe that you told the truth, that you are truth, that that is the way, the truth, and the life. Help us as we stumble together. Lord, help us to see you more clearly and help us to see ourselves as you do. We pray all of this in your saving and redeeming name. Amen.